happy and a sad day for me because uh, this last three weeks in the book of Jonah have been, I think, some of the most difficult times for me in the Word of God, as well as some of the sweetest times for me in the Word. They've been the most difficult times for me in the Word because I never knew how self-righteous I was. I never knew how legalistic my heart was. I, I never understood how far my heart was from the heart of God for this world until I studied the book of Jonah. And I saw in Jonah and his heart what's in my heart, which is, yes, true faith, and yes, the word of God, but also so much legalism, so much pride, so much of a judgmental spirit, so, so much of a lack of understanding of who God is and, and what he really cares about. And I've just felt so exposed in this study. I, I was sharing yesterday how every Sunday I've come up and I've, I feel like a hypocrite preaching these things to you when for me it's been the greatest conviction in my own heart that I am Jonah. And like Jonah, I, I limit the grace of God. I, I confine the grace of God. I I seek to uh, limit God's grace to people who are like me, who I feel comfortable with, but I don't understand his heart to, to go out and to move out in mission and to cross boundaries and to, to reach the worst of sinners with the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so I felt so exposed in, in studying this book. And yet at the same time, I think I've never understood how amazing God's grace is. Um, until I've studied the book of Jonah. I've, I've never seen how, how lovely God is, how amazing his grace is that he, his grace abounds for the worst of sinners. And he pursues in grace those who spurn him, those who hate him, and even believers who run from him, God is a God of relentless grace. The, the two themes in the book of Jonah have been that God pursues unbelievers like the Ninevites. The very worst of the unbelievers of our society, the dregs of society, the people that we feel are beyond the grace of God, God's heart is to pursue them in love. And the second theme is that God's heart is to pursue rebellious believers. We learn from this book that both believers and unbelievers need God's grace. Both believers and unbelievers need God to pursue them in love. And both believers and unbelievers receive God's grace because God's heart is to relentlessly pursue both the Ninevites in our society and the Jonas in our society. Our God is a God of relentless grace. And we've seen this as we've moved through this book, how God has pursued the city of Nineveh, the great capital of the Syrian empire, the most wicked city on the, place, on the face of this earth, a city known for their brutality and their violence, a city that is even marked out by secular historians as the worst of society in all of human history. 
God pursues this city and reaches out to them in grace, calling them to repentance. And we've seen how God has pursued Jonah, as hardened as Jonah is, as so much legalism and self-righteousness in his heart. He refuses to go to Nineveh. He, he's tribalistic in his mentality. He wants to keep the grace of God within the confines of his nationality and his ethnicity. And he does not want to cross boundaries because he despises the Ninevites because of their moral depravity. And he runs from God. He, he runs to Tarshish the opposite direction, and God pursues Jonah in the storm and in the fish. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah, his rebellion is broken, and he comes to an understanding of grace. And chapter 2, verse 10 says, The Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon the dry land, and Jonah is now prepared to speak the word of God to the worst of sinners. This book has all been about the pursuing grace of God. It's been about a God who follows sinners who seek to flee from him. But the climax of this book occurs in chapter 3. In fact, everything that we have seen in chapters 1 to 2, as amazing as it is, I mean, you might be looking at this book and saying, I don't know how it could get any more dramatic. I mean, being swallowed alive by a great fish, being half drowned at the bottom of the ocean, being caught in a great storm. I mean, how much more dramatic can this be? All of that has been merely preparatory to the great work of God's grace in chapters 3 and 4. And what we're going to see in chapters 3 and 4 are the two themes of Jonah reach a climax. The outline is going to be very simple. We're going to see God's pursuit of Nineveh in chapter 3, and then we're going to see God's pursuit of Jonah in chapter 4. And we're going to see how these two pursuits of God reach a climax at the end of this book. And so, without further ado, let's look at God's pursuit of Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3. Verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. We know from the very outset of chapter 3, the relentless nature of God's pursuit. And I think Jonah... He's just barely wiping the fish vomit out of his eyes and his hair. I mean, at least give the guy a break. Let him recuperate. He's just spent three days without food, three days without sunlight, three days in the belly of the fish. I mean, let him take a shower. Let him take a bath. Give him a little time. But God, immediately after the fish vomits out Jonah to dry land, comes to Jonah again and says, Arise, go to Nineveh. The same call he gave Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1. He is relentless. He has singled out Nineveh for mercy. And he will not stop until Nineveh receives mercy. And so he calls Jonah a second time. And this time Jonah obeys. He rises and goes to Nineveh 
according to the word of the Lord. And verse 3 emphasizes the greatness of the city. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. The text keeps coming back to us of how great Nineveh was, how large Nineveh was, how huge it was in scope. And it does this in order to emphasize to us how great God's grace is. How large God's grace is. That it would reach the entirety of this great city. In chapter 4, 11, it tells us that there are 120,000 persons in Nineveh who do not know their right hand from their left. Most commentators take that to refer to the children in the city of Nineveh because children literally don't know their right hand from their left. And if there are 120,000 children in Nineveh, then the estimated population of Nineveh would be 600,000 people or more. It is an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breath, and Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out this very simple message. It is five words in the original Hebrew. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And in chapter 3, verse 5, we see the greatest act of mass conversion in the history of Scripture. Possibly the greatest act of mass conversion in the history of the world. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The texture wants to emphasize the comprehensive scope of the conversion in this city. The text wants to emphasize that this was not confined to one aspect of the city or certain individuals in the city, but it was from the greatest to the least. Hundreds of thousands of wicked pagans believing in the true and the living God. And would you notice how verse 5 says, it, it doesn't say they believed Jonah. It says they believed God. They saw God's word being spoken through the prophet Jonah. And they humbled themselves by fasting and through wearing sackcloth, which was the clothing of mourning. It was the clothing you would wear to a funeral. Imagine all of Los Angeles showing up in the middle of downtown wearing black. Hundreds of thousands of people mourning over their sins, crying out for mercy, understanding that they live under the sentence of death and of hell, and crying out to God to be merciful to them. That is the picture in chapter 3, verse 5. It is the greatest act of mass conversion in the history of of the world. Even Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost reached 3,000 people, and that in itself was a tremendous work of God's grace. But picture this half a million people, from the greatest to the least, believing in God and humbling themselves 
and crying for mercy. This is an act of God's sovereign grace. It was not the winsomeness of the preacher that affected this change in Nineveh's heart. I mean, Jonah, I don't want to be crass, but I mean, he, he probably just looked like a wreck. And he probably still reeked of, of fish juice. I mean, the guy just came out of the pit of darkness, and he comes out and he preaches, and people have speculated that his skin is probably bleached from all the stomach acids. He, he just looks like a wreck. It's, it wasn't the winsomeness of Jonah that reached the city of Nineveh. It wasn't even the cleverness of the message. There were no fancy introductions. There were no fancy illustrations. There were no heartwarming stories. It wasn't great oratory. He just proclaimed five Hebrew words. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. The power in this revival was simply the sovereign grace of God. God had determined in his sovereign will, that he was going to extend grace to this city. And so when the word of God was proclaimed through the messenger of God, hearts were turned to believe in God. From the greatest of them to the least of them. I think this passage is a reminder to us that power of the church is not in the cleverness of the messengers. It's not in the winsomeness of our personalities. It's not in how well we package our message. The power of the church is in the sovereign grace of God to change hearts. And if God is determined to change a man's heart, No heart is so hard that it can resist God's effectual call. This passage is a reminder to us, an encouragement to us to keep preaching the cross, to keep preaching the gospel. As stammering, as as inadequate as we feel, that the message has power and God's sovereign grace has power. We have no power, but the cross has power to change men's hearts. And there is no, there is no sinner beyond the reach of God's grace. There is no sin that is so great that it cannot be forgiven There is no heart that is so hard that it cannot be changed. If God has sovereignly determined to bless a man, that man will be blessed. I think this passage encourages us that as inadequate as we feel, we can preach God's simple message and he will sovereignly do his work in men's hearts. The revival reaches the highest of society. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Secular historians would look at this and say, what, are you kidding me? An Assyrian king humbling himself before the mighty hand of God? There's one thing that Assyrian kings were 
we're not known for, and that is humility. Assyrian kings were not known for sensitive consciences. They were the most brutal kings in human society. You could compare them to Stalin or, or to Pol Pot or to the brutal dictators who just committed mass genocide. They rejoiced in the fact that they could rip out men's tongues and they could cut off men's hands and they could impale men on stakes for all to see, that they could skin men alive and decorate their cities with the human skins of their victims. They were the most wicked and brutal and hard-hearted of men. And yet here we see the king of Nineveh rising from his throne, covering himself with sackcloth, sitting in ashes. And verse 7 says, He issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the kings and his nobles that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows God may return and relent and turn from this fierce anger so that we may not perish. You'll notice here that the king not only calls the entire city to fast, He calls the animals to fast. It's as if he wants the the bleeding of suffering animals to remind the Ninevites of the greatness of their sin and the seriousness of the wrath that is to come. And he doesn't know if God will be merciful. He says, who knows? Jonah hasn't offered any mercy. He's only told them of wrath. He says, who knows? God may relent, God may turn, that we may not perish. Verse 10 says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Here's what you need to understand about our God. Our God is a God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Yes, our God is a holy God. And yes, our God is a just God. And yes, our God is a God who will punish sin. And yet God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18.23, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Ezekiel 33.11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil. Why will you die? Here's what we need to understand about God. Is his heart is a heart that desires that the wicked repent. And I caution us as a church 
that as we learn of the sovereign grace of God in election and predestination and sovereign regeneration, that we not fall into the theological error of hyper-Calvinism, which is a belief in the sovereignty of God devoid of any compassion and that lacks an understanding of God's compassionate heart towards sinners, that he pleads with the wicked sinner to repent. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. This is the heart of God. Come now. Receive grace. Why should you die? Repent, turn, and live. He is a God who is filled with compassion and mercy, abounding in steadfast love. Ezekiel 33:14. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. This is the heart of God put on display in the city of Nineveh, put on display in our lives as well, and that God desires for us to put on display in our lives as well, that his heart is a heart of grace and compassion. And yes, there are Ninevites in our lives whose sins are, yes, disgusting. And yes, there are Ninevites in our lives whose sins are, yes, great in the sight of God. And yes, they are worthy of wrath and judgment. And yet at the same time, brothers and sisters, at the same time, God pleads with them, come and repent and live. And if you come and confess your sins, there is no sin that cannot be forgiven by the greatness of God's grace. And I looked at this and I I had to repent of my unbelief because I look at certain sinners and I feel in my heart, I don't know if God can forgive that. I look at certain people in my life that I know their sins. And I feel in my heart, I don't know if God's grace can reach them. And God was saying to me in this passage, Dan, you don't understand my heart. You don't understand how great my grace really is. You've taken my grace and you've you've boxed it in into something that you're comfortable with and you're comfort zone and you don't understand how expansive it is how wide it is how big it is the man who sins is under my judgment and yet at the same time my heart is to reach out to cross boundaries to go and I want him to repent and this pastor was saying to me Dan don't you understand Hell is real. This God's wrath is not some theoretical doctrine that you just talk about. Hell is real. People who die really go there. People who die really spend eternity there. Don't you understand? 
Why would you take pleasure in the death of the wicked? I don't. How can we see the heart of God's grace in this way and yet have closed hearts? Because people we know, their sins offend us. Because they offend our moral sensibilities. Isn't that the spirit of Jonah in our hearts? When the heart of God is, why should you die? There is mercy and there is grace for any man who will repent. One of the testimonies that has blessed me tremendously through the years is the testimony of Carla Faye Tucker. She was a drug addict who, in 1983, in a drug-induced haze, brutally murdered two people by hacking them to pieces with a pickaxe in Texas. She was sentenced to death for her crime, and while in prison, she, she in her mind, stole a Bible from a prison ministry. She thought she was stealing it. They were giving it away for free. She was ashamed to read the Bible in front of people, so in the loneliness of her cell, she began to read, and she says this, I didn't know what I was reading. Before I knew it, I was in the middle of my floor, on my knees. And I was asking God to forgive me. Her heart was radically changed. She says, of that moment that she felt that God reached down inside of me and literally uprooted all that stuff and took it out and he poured himself in. And there on death row, Tucker gave vibrant testimony to her faith in Christ. In fact, in another amazing miracle of God's grace, the brother of one of her victims came to visit her in prison and through her testimony, he became a Christian. In an interview with Larry King, a month before her execution, King asked Tucker to explain to him, how can she have so much joy when she is a month away from being put to death? And she said this. She said, it's called the joy of the Lord. When you have done something that I have done, when you have done something like what I have done, and when you have been forgiven for it, and you are loved, it has a way of changing you. I have experienced real love. I know what real love is. I know what forgiveness is. Even when I did something so horrible, I know that because God forgave me and I accepted what Jesus did on the cross, 
that when I leave here, I am going to be with him. Tucker was executed by lethal injection on February 2nd, 1998. And she said her last words were, I'm going to be face to face with Jesus. I will wait for you there. Is there any sinner that is beyond the reach of God's grace? Is there any sin that God cannot forgive? Is there any heart that God cannot change? The story of the city of Nineveh proclaims to us the answer is no. God can forgive the worst of sinners. And brothers and sisters, I would just plead with us to first remember that we were the Ninevites. We were the ones who lived under God's wrath. We were the ones who deserved hell and God has sovereignly changed our lives. And I would also exhort us as a church that if the wicked shall perish, let it be that they will perish with our relentless prayers following them to their grave. Let it be that they will perish with our compassionate hearts following them till the day they die. Let it be that they will perish with us extending God's grace and mercy to them until the day they go to eternity. May our hearts be as Abraham's hearts was when he prayed for Sodom, when he pleaded with God, God, 50 people in Sodom. If there are 50 righteous people, spare the city. 40 people, 30 people. God, 20 people. God, 10 people. Spare, relent. Save this wicked city. May that be our heart's prayer for those we know. Because we learn in Jonah chapter 3 that God pursues pagan unbelievers. Well, as we see God's grace, as amazing as it is, in Jonah chapter 3, the story just gets better and better because as amazing as this revival is in Jonah chapter 3, it isn't the main point of the book. <laughs> the greatest revival in the history of the world, that's not even the main point. The main point of the book is not God's pursuit of Nineveh, but it is God's pursuit of Jonah. And so as we move from chapter 3 to chapter 4, let us see God's relentless heart toward Jonah. Chapter 4 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I've looked at this book and just thought, you know, it would have been a great ending if it just ended in chapter 3. I mean, if I was writing this story, I'd end it there. I mean, that's the high point. Bad prophet turned good. Hundreds of thousands of people coming to know mercy. That's the climax. All the plot weaves have been tied up. Uh, God has pursued Jonah. God has won. God has pursued Nineveh. God has won. We're walking out of the theater happy. This is a great story. The end. Just let it lie. But God is too honest with us to sugarcoat the truth. And the book of Jonah ends on a most perplexing and most unsettling note. It ends with this this epilogue where Jonah is angry over the repentance of Nineveh. Now, some of you might look at this and you're, you're saying, I don't, I don't understand, you know, um, why would he get angry? I mean, he's a preacher, he preaches to Nineveh and people come to Christ and, and uh, when you're a preacher, don't you want people to respond to you and you're bigger than Billy Graham, you, you, you've you preached to hundreds of thousands of people and that why would a guy be angry at the repentance of sinners? But let me ask you to run through some of the greatest villains in our history. Would you be angry if Timothy McVeigh, who bombed the Oklahoma City Federal Building before his death, came to know Christ and proclaimed to everyone, I am forgiven of all my sin. Would you be angry if Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, men who ruthlessly shot down students at Columbine, proclaimed before their death that I am forgiven of all my sins through the blood of Jesus Christ? Would you be angry if Theodore Kaczynski, the Unabomber, proclaimed to everyone, I am forgiven of all my sin. And you were to look at these wicked, despicable examples of society and they're saying they're forgiven, they're going to heaven, they're going to live forever. And the the guy you know who has lived an ethical life, a moral life, who has paid his taxes, who has raised his family, who has volunteered for the PTA, who has coached Little League, who's been a nice guy all his life, is going to hell because he's rejected Christ. And here come these dregs of society saying that they're children of God. Would you be angry if you saw Carla Faye Tucker, pickaxe murderer, drug addict, going to heaven? and the people that she brutally murdered going to hell. 
Is there anything in your heart that would look at that and say, that's just outrageous? That's not right. It's not fair. Multiply that, whatever you feel in your heart, by 600,000. And that's what Jonah's feeling in his heart. His countrymen are in unbelief. His brothers and sisters are in unbelief. The nation of Israel is, is in unbelief. And here are these mass murderers, these perpetrators of genocide, receiving mercy on a great scale from the hand of God. He was displeased exceedingly. Literally in the Hebrew, it's his, it was an evil to him. It was, ESV has an exceeding evil to his heart. He, he was angry. Verse 9 says he was angry enough to die. And he said to God, Lord, this is why I ran from you. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious God. He says to God flat out, right in his face, I was right to run from you the first time. If I knew what I knew, know now, I would do it again. Jonah repents of his repentance. He was repentant in chapter 2. He says, I take it back. If I would have known that this is what you were going to do, I would have run again. This is why I ran to Tarshish. And I think Jonah was just unprepared by the scale of God's grace, by the scope of God's grace. I mean, maybe he thought that one person would repent or two people would repent. Maybe three people, a segment of society received God's grace, but he was unprepared by the scope and the width and the breadth of God's grace put on display in the city of Nineveh. And his heart was nauseated by so many sinners coming to receive forgiveness by God. And so he says, please take my life from me. It is better for me to live, to die than to live. Now at this point, we all say, look, all right, God's pursued Jonah in the storm. God's pursued Jonah in the fish. God's pursued him through this whole book. It's just time for God to, to just give up on the guy. Because man, I mean, how many times do you have to pursue a guy? I mean, how fickle in his heart. Just a few days ago, he was in the fish, and he's saying salvation belongs to the Lord. And now he's here a few days later, and he's, he's uh, saying to God, I was right to run from you. How many times is God going to pursue a guy? Just give up on him. Grant his wish. He asked to die, so just kill him. Just end of story. How relentless is God's grace? In verse 4, we see God responding to the rebellion of Jonah by pursuing him again. God is relentless. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now, I want you to note here that God pursues us not only in the storms, but also in, in the silence. God pursues believers not only in these great calamities in our lives that rock our worlds and bring us to our knees and take us to the pit of darkness, but also in quiet reasoning with us. Some of you, God is pursuing this morning by putting you through the storm. You're in the belly of the fish. You're in the heart of darkness. And others of you, God is sweetly trying to reason with you. 
He's trying to dialogue with you. And he's speaking to you in a quiet way. And in Jonah chapter 2, God pursued Jonah in a great act of trial. And, and here he's going he's gonna to reason with Jonah. He's going to sweetly speak to him. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, is this, is this right? What's in your heart, Jonah? What is motivating this anger? Verse 5, Jonah runs again. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what should become of the city. No answer to God. He runs again and goes outside the city. And the idea here is, I believe, that Jonah would be looking at Nineveh and maybe hoping that God would change his mind. He's watching. Maybe God will really judge these people and just wipe out the city. He wanted to see what happened to the city. Now watch, in verses 6 to 8, God is going to, in rapid succession, arrange three sovereign circumstances in Jonah's life to draw Jonah's heart out and to show him his sin. In verse 6, he's going to send a plant. In verse 7, he's going to send a worm. And in verse 8, he's going to send a wind. Three sovereign circumstances in rapid-fire succession to draw out Jonah's heart, a plant, a worm, and a wind. And three times the text is going to tell us that God appointed this. God is going to appoint the plant. He's going to appoint the worm. He's going to appoint the wind, just as he appointed the fish in chapter 1, verse 17. This is going to be God sovereignly orchestrating the circumstances in Jonah's life in order to teach him a lesson. And so here it comes, verse 6. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant, and it came up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. In that part of the world, temperatures would have reached about 110 degrees. The shade of this plant would have been a welcome relief from the heat of the sun, and Jonah would have been very happy with this shade. And verse 6 actually says that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. It's the first time in the entire book that we see Jonah happy. I mean, he's miserable in the beginning of the book. He's sad when he goes to Nineveh. He's sad in the storm. He's sad in the belly of the fish. He's sad to see people coming to faith. He's angry throughout the whole book. The first time, finally, chapter 4, he's happy guy. He's got what he wants. He's got everything in life to make him happy. A plant. You know, desert air conditioning, that's all I want in life, is shade over my head. And he is exceedingly glad. Simple guy, right? And doesn't need much to be happy. Just give him a plant, and he's a happy guy. And verse 7 says, And when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. I mean, how sad. It's like... After all that he's been through, I mean, the storm and the, way, the, the fish and the vomiting out on the dry land, after all he's been through, he just gets this one plant and he's so happy and then it dies. He wakes up and there's a worm there and the plant's withered. His, all of his happiness is just withered on this ground. It was the sovereign appointment of God. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God, God makes it worse. 
God not only takes away shade, but God appointed a scorching east wind. They see that these winds would have increased the temperature of the desert 20 degrees. So if you can imagine being 110 degrees in the desert, imagine 130 degrees in the desert. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. The plant, the worm, the wind, sovereign circumstances in Jonah's life that are meant to draw out his heart so that God can address his sin and restore him to himself. And what I want us to learn from this is that God not only pursues us through the great acts of suffering in our lives, but God pursues us through the everyday little disappointments that we face. Our car breaks down on the highway. Ants infest our kitchen. The air conditioner breaks down in the heat of summer. That one thing that you had that was on sale, that was such a on clearance that you had your heart set on, you get to the store and drive 30 minutes to get there and you get there and some guy takes it right before you do and there's nothing left. And these little disappointments in life are the sovereign appointment of God meant to draw out our hearts and to show us what is in our hearts so that God may restore us. If Jonah would have come to me for counseling and said, I don't know what happened. I had a plant. I was happy. And the next day it was gone. And the next day there was a wind. We would say to him, Jonah, God's trying to reach your heart through this. He's trying to teach you something. And that is what God is doing to Jonah. But Jonah doesn't get the message. In verse 8, he says, he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? I mean, Jonah, you're so angry that Ninevites are going to live, and then you're so angry that plants die? I mean, what's going on in your heart? Do you do well? And here is where Jonah's rebellion reaches a climax. Jonah says, and he sounds like a really a three-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And I've seen kids throw a temper tantrum and get angry, and I've seen kids with, just stomp their fists and say, I am right to be angry. And that's Jonah here. The plant, the worm, and the wind were all meant to be expressions of God's pursuing grace toward Jonah. And they were all meant to lead Jonah and prepare his heart for the final question that is in this book. And it is the question in verse 10. And the Lord said to Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much 
the end. End of story. We turn the page and we're hoping for Jonah chapter 5. What happened? We search in vain our table of contents. There, there must be a Jonah 2, a sequel here, that explains to us, did Jonah repent or not? What ha- You end with a question? What, what happens in the story? And at first glance, this seems to be a very unsatisfying way to end the book of Jonah because we want to know. We like stories of the resolution. We like happy endings. We like it when plot threads come to fruition. And God ends the book with a question. I believe that the ending of this book is intentional And it is purposeful. Because I believe that what God wants to leave us with at the end of the story of Jonah, after all that we've seen in the storm and the fish and the prayer and the Ninevites and everything that we've seen in this book, I believe that God wants to leave us not with an answer, but with a question. And it's as if at the end of the book, Jonah gets out of the way. And God makes explicit to our hearts that this is the question that I want burning in your hearts and your minds as you leave this book so that it's inescapable. It doesn't get lost in the midst of the narrative. We have to deal with it because it is the question that is on the heart of God. And the question is simply this. Is it right to care so much about things? About creature comforts? About even good things like plants? Is it right to have so much love for things and have so little love for people. That's the climax of the book. That's the question God wants each of us leaving this story with. That's the question God wants to burn in our hearts and our minds this week as we leave the teaching of his word. Jonah says to God, I don't understand your love. You love wicked Ninevites. God says to Jonah, I don't understand your love. You love things more than you love people. What upsets you, Jonah, is that a plant dies. What gets your heart going is that this comfort that you had was lost. What really riles up your emotions is that you lost a plant. Jonah, there are 120,000 children in Nineveh. You don't understand my love. I don't understand your love. 
Is it right to care so much more about things than it is to care about people? When things, God says, are here today and gone tomorrow, when people are souls that last for eternity. Jonah, you don't understand my heart. Jonah, I love people, not things. My heart is for people, not plants. What gets my emotions running are people. And God wants us to leave Jonah with this question. Cornerstone Bible Church. Is it right for us to care so much about the things in our lives and care so little about the people in our lives? He would ask us, what gets you upset? What is your plant? What is that one thing in your life that makes your life happy? It may be your car, it may be your, your home, it may be your kitchen. It may be your wardrobe. It may be your computer. What is that one thing that if you have it, you're happy, and if you don't have it, you're not happy, and God would just leave us with that question. Is it right to care so much about that thing and care so little about people who are perishing and going to hell. Is that my heart? You get so upset. God was saying to me in this text, Dan, you get so upset about things. You get so upset about sitting in traffic. I mean, it just it just it just gets your goat when there's when, when you're on the five freeway and you're not moving and you just get so upset about that. I mean, you, you get so upset when there's a virus on your computer. Oh, I gotta run my antivirus. What a, what a pain. You get so upset when the grocery line, there's five people in the grocery line. Oh, there's the guy in front of me. Man, this is a 15 item only grocery line. You have 20 things in your item. You get so riled up, you get so upset. And you feel so little about people who don't know Christ. And we're heading for a crisis eternity. It doesn't bother you. God was saying to me in this text, Dan, is that right? Is that right? Is that right for you to invest so much of your heart and your time and your money and your energy in things when those things will burn? When the only thing that you will take to heaven with you are is your faith and people 
who believe in Christ. The story ends abruptly because that is the defining question that God wants in our hearts and our minds as we leave this text. And what God also wants burning in our hearts and our minds as we leave the story of Jonah is the picture of God pursuing. It ends with God pursuing. God is still pursuing. He's still pursuing Ninevites. He's still pursuing Jonas. As I said at the beginning of this message, studying this book has been a tremendous blessing and it's also been very difficult for me. It's exposed so much of how little I understand the heart of God. There have been times when I've studied, been studying this book when I, I felt like Jonah, where I feel like, God, can't you just leave me alone? I mean, all I want in life is some, some uh, it's a new buffalo wing place to open near my place, and all I want in life, if I just get six pieces of buffalo wings, I'm a happy guy. That's, that's all I want in life. I'm a simple guy. I don't need much. I don't need a mansion. Just some buffalo wings. Can't you just leave me alone? And through this book, God kept hammering me and hammering me and hammering me that, Dan, you don't understand my heart. You don't understand my grace. You have so much legalism, so much pride. You have so little compassion. But my encouragement and my hope is at the end of this book is that my God is a pursuing God. God is not done pursuing me. He's not done with his work in my life, and God is not done pursuing you. He will not relent, and he will not give up until we understand his heart and understand his grace and to fully reveal his grace toward us. 850 years after the life of Jonah, God sent another messenger He sent a messenger who succeeded where Jonah failed, a messenger who was faithful when Jonah was fickle, where Jonah ran from his enemies, this messenger ran to his enemies, where Jonah preached a message of wrath and judgment, this messenger preached a message of forgiveness and love, and where Jonah went to his enemies at the risk of his life, this messenger went to his enemies at the cost of his life. The greater messenger of God, the greater prophet of God, was Jesus Christ who expressed God's relentless grace to this world that we may receive his pursuing grace by faith. My encouragement to us as we leave this book is to receive God's relentless grace that it may transform our hearts to the glory of our great Savior. Let's close in prayer together. I want you just to take a minute. I want you to allow God to 
ask you that question. Is it right for you to care so much about things and so little about people? Take a minute to respond to that final question God leaves us with. And to pray to him in faith, confess your sin, receive his grace, his forgiveness, and his transforming love. Father, we praise you for your relentless grace toward us. We are the Ninevites and we are Jonah. We are the worst of sinners saved by your sovereign grace. We are believers who don't understand your grace and who run from you. Yet in your gracious mercy, you pursue us. Thank you. Thank you for forgiving us time and time again. Thank you for extending your grace time and time again. Thank you for sending the greater messenger of God, the greater prophet of God, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you. Time and time again, we will simply say thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. Thank you for the trials which teach us our dependence upon you. Thank you for being sovereign over every circumstance of our life. Thank you for the storms. Thank you for pursuing us and not leaving us to ourselves. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you for you are a God of amazing grace. It is by mercy and grace we come. And mercy and grace we trust. And we will give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.